Chapter Thirteen from Bullfinch's The Age of Chivalry. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Barry Eads. The Age of Chivalry by Thomas Bullfinch. Chapter Thirteen. Tristram and Isoude. After this affair, Tristram was banished from the kingdom and Isoude shut up in a tower, which stood on the bank of a river. Tristram could not resolve to depart without some further communication with his beloved, so he concealed himself in the forest, till at last he contrived to attract her attention, by means of twigs which he curiously peeled, and sent down the stream under her window. By this means many secret interviews were obtained. Tristram dwelt in the forest, sustaining himself by game, which the dog Houdain ran down for him, for this faithful animal was unequalled in the chase, and knew so well his master's wish for concealment that, in the pursuit of his game, he never barked. At length Tristram departed, but left Houdain with Isoude, as a remembrancer of him. Sir Tristram wandered through various countries, achieving the most perilous enterprises, and covering himself with glory, yet unhappy at the separation from his beloved Isoude. At length King Mark's territory was invaded by a neighboring chieftain, and he was forced to summon his nephew to his aid. Tristram obeyed the call, put himself at the head of his uncle's vassals, and drove the enemy out of the country. Mark was full of gratitude, and Tristram, restored to favor and to the society of his beloved Isoude, seemed at the summit of happiness. But a sad reverse was at hand. Tristram had brought with him a friend named Faradin, son of the king of Brittany. This young knight saw Queen Isoude, and could not resist her charms. Knowing the love of his friend for the queen, and that the love was returned, Faradin concealed his own, until his health failed, and he feared he was drawing near his end. He then wrote to the beautiful queen that he was dying for love of her. The gentle Isoude, in a moment of pity for the friend of Tristram, returned him an answer so kind and compassionate that it restored him to life. A few days afterwards Tristram found this letter. The most terrible jealousy took possession of his soul. He would have slain Faradin, who with difficulty made his escape. Then Tristram mounted his horse and rode to the forest, where for ten days he took no rest nor food. At length he was found by a damsel, lying almost dead by the brink of a fountain. She recognized him, and tried in vain to rouse his attention. At last recollecting his love for music, she went and got her harp and played thereon. Tristram was roused from his reverie tears flowed, he breathed more freely. He took the harp from the maiden, and sung this lay, with a voice broken with sobs. Sweet I sang in former days, kind love perfected my lays. Now my art alone displays the woe that on my being preys. Charming love, delicious power, worshipped from my earliest hour, thou who life on all dost shower, love, my life, thou dost devour. In death's hour I beg of thee, Isoude, dearest enemy, thou who erst couldst kinder be, when I'm gone, forget not me. On my gravestone, passers by oft will read as low I lie. Never wit in love could vie with Tristram, yet she let him die. Tristram, having finished his lay, wrote it off and gave it to the damsel, conjuring her to present it to the queen. Meanwhile, Queen Isoude was inconsolable at the absence of Tristram. She discovered that it was caused by the fatal letter which she had written to Faradin. Innocent, but in despair at the sad effects of her letter, 
she wrote another to Faridun, charging him never to see her again. The unhappy lover obeyed this cruel decree. He plunged into the forest, and died of grief and love in a hermit's cell. Isoude passed her days in lamenting the absence and unknown fate of Tristram. One day her jealous husband, having entered her chamber unperceived, overheard her singing the following lay. My voice to piteous wail is bent, my harp to notes of languishment. Ah, love, delightsome days be meant, for happier wits with heart's content. Ah, Tristram, far away from me, art thou from restless anguish free? Ah, couldst thou so one moment be, from her who so much loveth thee? The king, hearing these words, burst forth in a rage, but Azud was too wretched to fear his violence. You have heard me, she said. I confess it all. I love Tristram, and always shall love him. Without doubt he is dead, and died for me. I no longer wish to live. The blow that shall finish my misery will be most welcome. The king was moved at the distress of the fair Isoude, and perhaps the idea of Tristram's death tended to ally his wrath. He left the queen in charge of her women, commanding them to take a special care, lest her despair should lead her to do harm to herself. Tristram, meanwhile, distracted as he was, rendered a most important service to the shepherds by slaying a gigantic robber named Tallis, who was in the habit of plundering their flocks and rifling their cottages. The shepherds, in their gratitude to Tristram, bore him in triumph to King Mark to have him bestow on him a suitable reward. No wonder Mark failed to recognize in the half-clad wild man before him his nephew Tristram. But grateful for the service the unknown had rendered, he ordered him to be well taken care of, and gave him in charge to the queen and her women. Under such care Tristram rapidly recovered his serenity and his health, so that the romancer tells us he became handsomer than ever. King Mark's jealousy revived with Tristram's health and good looks, and, in spite of his debt of gratitude so lately increased, he again banished him from the court. Sir Tristram left Cornwall, and proceeded into the land of Logria, England, in quest of adventures. One day he entered a wide forest. The sound of a little bell showed him that some inhabitant was near. He followed the sound, and found a hermit, who informed him that he was in the forest of Arnantis, belonging to the fairy Vivian, the Lady of the Lake, who, smitten with love for King Arthur, had found means to entice him to this forest, where by enchantments she held him a prisoner, having deprived him of all memory of who and what he was. The hermit informed him that all the knights of the round table were out in search of the king, and that he, Tristram, was now in the scene of the most grand and important adventures. This was enough to animate Tristram in the search. He had not wandered far before he encountered he had not wandered far before he encountered a knight of Arthur's court, who proved to be Sir Kay from Seneschal, who demanded of him whence he came. Tristram answering from Cornwall, Sir Kay did not let slip the opportunity of a joke at the expense of the Cornish knight. Tristram chose to leave him in his error, and even confirmed him in it. For meeting some other knights, Tristram declined to jest with them. They spent the night together at an abbey, where Tristram submitted patiently to all their jokes. The seneschal gave the word to his companions that they should set out early next day and intercept the Cornish knight on his way, and enjoy the amusement of seeing his fright when they should insist on running a tilt with him. Tristram next morning found himself alone. He put on his armor and set out to continue his quest. He soon saw before him the seneschal and the three knights, 
who barred the way and insisted on a just. Tristram excused himself a long time. At last he reluctantly took his stand. He encountered them, one after the other, and overthrew all four, man and horse, and then rode off, bidding them not to forget their friend, the Knight of Cornwall. Tristram had not ridden far when he met a damsel who cried out, Ah, my lord, hasten forward, and prevent a horrid treason. Tristram flew to her assistance, and soon reached a spot where he beheld a knight, whom three others had borne to the ground, and were unlacing his helmet in order to cut off his head. Tristram flew to the rescue, and slew with one stroke of his lance one of the assailants. The knight, recovering his feet, sacrificed another to his vengeance, and the third made his escape. The rescued knight then raised the visor of his helmet, and a long white beard fell down upon his breast. The majesty and venerable air of this knight made Tristram suspect that it was none other than Arthur himself, and the prince confirmed his conjecture. Tristram would have knelt before him, but Arthur received him in his arms, and inquired his name and country. But Tristram declined to disclose them, on the plea that he was now on a quest requiring secrecy. At this moment the damsel who had brought Tristram to the rescue darted forward, and seizing the king's hand, drew from his finger a ring, the gift of the fairy, and by that act dissolved the enchantment. Arthur, having recovered his reason and his memory, offered to Tristram to attach him to his court, and to confer honors and dignities upon him. But Tristram declined all, and only consented to accompany him till he should see him safe in the hands of his knights. Soon after Hector de Marys rode up and saluted the king, who on his part introduced him to Tristram as one of the bravest of his knights. Tristram took leave of the king and his faithful follower, and continued his quest. We cannot follow Tristram through all the adventures which filled this epoch of his history. Suffice it to say, he fulfilled on all occasions the duty of a true knight, rescuing the oppressed, redressing wrongs, abolishing evil customs, and suppressing injustice, thus by constant action endeavoring to lighten the pains of absence from her he loved. In the meantime Isoude, separated from her dear Tristram, passed her days in languor and regret. At length she could no longer resist the desire to hear some news of her lover. She wrote a letter, and sent it by one of her damsels, niece of her faithful Brengwain. One day Tristram, weary with his exertions, had dismounted and laid himself down by the side of a fountain, and fallen asleep. The damsel of the Queen Isoude arrived at the same fountain, and recognized Pasebriol, the horse of Tristram, and presently perceived his master asleep. He was thin and pale, showing evident marks of the pain he suffered in separation from his beloved. She awakened him, and gave him the letter which she bore, and Tristram enjoyed the pleasure, so sweet to a lover, of hearing from and talking about the object of his affections. He prayed the damsel to postpone her return till after the magnificent tournament which Arthur had proclaimed should have taken place, and conducted her to the castle of Persides, a brave and loyal knight, who received her with great consideration. Tristram conducted the damsel of Queen Isoude to the tournament, and had her placed in the balcony among the ladies of the queen. He glanced and saw the stately galleries. Dame, damsel, each through worship of their queen, white-robed in honor of the stainless child, and some with scattered jewels like a bank, of maiden snow mingled with sparks of fire, he looked but once, and veiled his eyes again. The last tournament. He then joined the tourney. Nothing could exceed his strength and valor. Launcelot admired him, and by a secret presentiment declined to dispute the honor of the day with a knight so gallant and so skillful. 
Arthur descended from the balcony to greet the conqueror, but the modest and devoted Tristram, content with having borne off the prize in the sight of the messenger of Isoude, made his escape with her, and disappeared. The next day the tourney recommenced. Tristram assumed different armor that he might not be known, but he was soon detected by the terrible blows that he gave. Arthur and Guinevere had no doubt that it was the same knight who had borne off the prize of the day before. Arthur's gallant spirit was roused. After Launcelot of the Lake and Sir Gawain, he was accounted the best knight of the round table. He went privately and armed himself, and came into the tourney in undistinguished armor. He ran adjust with Tristram, whom he shook in his seat, but Tristram, who did not know him, threw him out of the saddle. Arthur recovered himself, and content with having made proof of the stranger knight, bade Launcelot finish the adventure, and vindicate the honor of the round table. Sir Launcelot, at the bidding of the monarch, assailed Tristram, whose lance was already broken in former encounters. But the law of this sort of combat was that the knight, after having broken his lance, must fight with his sword, and must not refuse to meet with his shield the lance of his antagonist. Tristram met Launcelot's charge upon his shield, which that terrible lance could not fail to pierce. It inflicted a wound upon Tristram's side, and breaking, left the iron in the wound. But Tristram, also with his sword, smote so vigorously on Launcelot's cask that he cleft it, and wounded his head. The wound was not deep, but the blood flowed into his eyes, and blinded him for a moment, and Tristram, who thought himself mortally wounded, retired from the field. Launcelot declared to the king that he had never received such a blow in his life before. Tristram hastened to Gouvernail, his squire, who drew forth the iron, bound up the wound, and gave him immediate ease. Tristram, after the tournament, kept retired in his tent, but Arthur, with the consent of all the knights of the round table, decreed him the honors of the second day. But it was no longer a secret that the victor of the two days was the same individual, and Gouvernail, being questioned, confirmed the suspicions of Launcelot and Arthur that it was no other than Sir Tristram of Lyonis, the nephew of the King of Cornwall. King Arthur, who desired to reward his distinguished valor, and knew that his uncle Mark had ungratefully banished him, would have eagerly availed himself of the opportunity to attach Tristram to his court, all the knights of the round table declaring with acclamation that it would be impossible to find a more worthy companion. But Tristram had already departed in search of adventures, and the damsel of Queen Azud returned to her mistress. End of chapter 13